0: Welcome back and Happy New Year from the Brute Theology Podcast. This is Ryan and this is part two with Ishmael Akbulut on Islam, myths, and the truth about this religion that is a very hot topic, hot button um, political issue, religious issue, and often polarizing issue in the Western world. So I hope that uh, this is insightful. Hope that you've come to listen to these episodes with an open heart and an open mind and then engaging in these conversations outside of your earbuds with your friends and your neighbors and your colleagues. If you like what we do, there are a few things that we, which you can do. First off, you can go over to iTunes and you can rate it and review it. Five stars would be great. Share it online. We are on all the Brute Theology social media channels at Brew Theology, except for Twitter, that is brew underscore theology. We also have a Facebook group outside of a page where you can interact with us. You can email Ryan or Janelle at ryan at brewtheology.org to learn more about what we do. Always go to the website brewtheology.org and we would love to partner with you. We'd love to have sponsors. If you uh, also like what we do, you can donate. You can go to the donate page on our website and you can give a one-time donation or you could be a monthly contributor and we would greatly appreciate that. We love what we're doing here. We're about to get back into business in Denver to start off uh, a whole new year. So um, in a few weeks, you're going to be hearing from Pam Eisenbaum. She's actually come back to the podcast. We'll have here, her in Denver and her husband, Mark George, will be, be, at, be back in a uh, month after that as well. So lots in store. We have a uh, person from the Baha'i faith coming to talk to us. Uh, we're going to do somebody from uh, the Gnostic Church in Denver that's going to be talking as well. A lot of great things in the store. We have an event coming up in May. I know that's a long ways away, but you are invited wherever you live. Come to Denver. It's on May the 4th. That's an easy date to remember. May the 4th be with you. It's called Ale Truist. And uh, registration is coming very soon. So get excited about that. Ale Truist, where six faith leaders Here in Denver, we're going to come together for a day over conversation about altruistic stuff. You get it, altruist, altruist, and craft beer. Lots of fun there. We're also going to be at the New Story Festival in Austin, Texas at the end of March. Look that up, New Story Festival. And back at Wild Goose. Just put in our submissions there. We'll be back at Wild Goose this summer in mid-July. So... um, Again, lots of fun stuff. That's just the first part of the year. Not to mention the fact that we we meet every single week here in Denver. We also have nine other chapters across the country and more coming your way in 2019. All right, everybody. Here we go. Part two with Ishmael Akbulat. Peace.
1: You shared with us about equality mm-hmm. and the special place that women hold in their families yes. and in their um uh, with money. Mm-hmm.
2: That part was so awesome. <laughs> it is. That if you as a married woman make money, you know, it's, it's your choice to have a job. And if you, if you get a job and make money, that money is yours. And if you want to share it with the rest of your family, that's your choice too. Yes. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, well it is. Yeah.
1: Talk about the coverings,
2: mm-hmm.
1: what they are. And, um, if you would be willing to be honest about um, how often you feel women actually choose them Mm -hmm. and don't choose them, Um, because I think that that, and and I will lay it on the table that I feel like Christianity, even though we're not as visible, does the exact same thing, that there are are modalities and expectations that that some women live out their entire lives and never think about and never question, and that, there are others of us that get to places of choice and may choose to do some things or others. But does, does that exist in Islam, and how widespread is that? Because I think one of the large criticisms is, is it appears from a Western perspective of the news and what we hear that there's not a lot of choice.
3: Yes. So first of all, the head covering, the hijab or the headscarf is not an invention of the religion of Islam. We see the same tradition in Judaism yeah. and Christianity. Um, in Islam, it is mentioned twice in the Quran on how to cover, that women should be covering. There, there is also a tradition in Islam for men as well. It's not just limited okay. to women. Not about the head covering, but Certain parts of the body um, needs to be um, covered as well for men. So, in Islam, it is, first of all, a sign of the religion. You're wearing your religion on your head as a symbol. Besides that, it is a sign of modesty. Muslim women and men, they have to be very modest in their appearance. Um, You are not allowed to show any arrogance. You have to appear very humble. For instance, women... They have to wear loose clothes. Men as well. You you are you shouldn't be wearing very um, tight clothes. Mm-hmm. No skinny jeans, dudes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, man is not allowed to wear silk. Man is not allowed to wear gold. Um, man wears usually silver. Women are. Men are not. And for women, at the same time, um, women are saying that the the headscarf or the way they they dress is also protection for them, because when they Walk that way outside. Um, the chances to be harassed is um, less than um, if they were less dressed. Yeah. Um, coming to your question about um, how it's being perceived, or how, is it a choice in the religion of Islam? It, it is a choice a woman has to make. Um, it, it is between her and God. Wearing the, not wearing the hijab does not make somebody a non-Muslim. A woman who chooses not to wear the hijab is still a Muslim. Um, it is between her and God, and it might be a sin, but the sin, might, sin is between her and God as well. Um, so it is a, a choice that she needs to make for herself. In some countries, um, such as Afghanistan, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Iran, um, the government imposes um, the headscarf for women. And this contradicts actually with Islamic teachings um, because it needs to be a choice. It needs to be, women need to be wearing the hijab out of their consciousness for the religion, of, out of their faith, of, out of their belief. However, when the government imposes that, they create hypocrisy hypocrisy, sorry, um, because um, people are not wearing that because they want to, because they're wearing that because they are they have to. I can give you an example from my wife. My wife wasn't wearing the hijab when we married. And later on, years later, she decided to because um, she studied and um, she understood for herself that it is better for her, and she decided to wear the, um, the headscarf, the hijab. And since then, she has been wearing it. And um, there's many women here in the United States who choose to wear it. There's w- many women who do not choose, but there is, of course, also families who impose the headscarf on their daughters. And this is you- wrong. This is wrong. Um, I'm not doing that. And um, it needs to be the, the girls or the women have to make that decision after puberty for themselves. Anytime, um, and um, the good deed, the reward for that, they will see in the hereafter um, by God.
1: Yeah, it's um, I'm uh, uh, for me, I uh, ran across a book by Einher Hirsi Ali, who I know is controversial, but in that book she described um, what it was like the first time that she removed her hijab when she was a refugee, and that actually opened the door for me to see the things that had been laid upon me in my Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's something that I don't, don't fully understand, but it is, it is something that impacted me just reading um, the way that those thought processes work and how they function Mm -hmm. and how they can function well and how they can function in bad ways. So I'm thank you for your thoughtful answer. No, thank
3: you. And thank you for mentioning um, the author and, um, I read some of her um, one of her book as well, and um, I think many things that she describes is related to the culture that she mm-hmm. comes from, and um, she mixes up the culture with the religion and um, and her personal bad experience with that her personal bad experience with the culture or her perceived religion does not make the entire religion bad but um, and and she is not an Islamic scholar um, to talk about. Um, to make judgments about these things, I believe.
1: Yeah,
2: and uh, something that I was thinking, and and it just brought it to mind again now, and I'd like to say it on the podcast is that we have to realize that for those of us who claim Christianity, it's very similar. I mean, uh, American Christianity is a thing, and mm-hmm. you talk to Christians from other parts of the world that come from other uh, traditions, and you will see how they're culturally situated. You go to, I have not been, but from what I hear is you go to Palestine, you can't tell who's Muslim or who's Christian because they're all wearing headscarves or head coverings. Um, You you look at what's happening. I won't get too much into the politics, but you look at what's happening in this country and how evangelicals in particular vote and the kinds of values that they espouse from the outside. It's like these Christians are X, Y, Z, whereas maybe Christians in Africa or... Asia might be thinking that's not Christianity. That's American culture.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And, and you actually, you
0: stated that, that culture you said this the other night, culture should never override religion. So how do you, how do you keep those two separate? I mean, if, if religion comes from a culture, mm. uh, culture is influencing religion, I, this is where it's just difficult for all of us. Yes. So maybe this should be like uh, an interfaith discussion right now. And
3: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and I think the key to that is education. The key to, to that is absolute education that people have to study their religion. What is part of the religion? What is the culture? And some of um, the things that our prophet did was probably culture too. Uh, In my understanding, for instance, you see a lot of men having long beards, right? And for some Muslims, the understanding of that, it is the religion. I have to have a beard like the prophet because he had one. I have to imitate him. But for some Muslim scholars, they say, no, it's the culture. It was the culture of that time. You don't have to do that. Um, You can if you want, um, but it's not a, a commandment to do that.
1: How readily do Muslims accept that kind of um, cultural understanding and contextualization of the text? Um, American Christians definitely have a wide spectrum, um, with, you know, even to the point where they may be willing to delineate out a Greek or Hebrew word, but when it comes to whether or not women can speak in church, well, clearly that is, that's truth, you know, so can you talk a little bit about how that plays out in Islam? Yeah, I mean there, there is a variety
3: of different interpretations um, among Muslims. So it is very difficult to say Islam says this and that because there is interpretations, a variety. But what we can say is there is a mainstream interpretation and then there is extreme ex- interpretations on, on b- both sides. Um, when it comes to women, for instance, um, in the United States now we see new movements. Um, for instance, in Islam, the tradition is that a man leads the prayer. And right now we see um, masks where women lead the prayer, Muslim women lead the prayer. We see masks where men and women are praying side by side in the United States. Um, it's still marginal, right. but yes. we see these movements. We see LGBTQ masks in the United States. Um, so um so these taboos are being broken right now destroyed in the united states and muslims have to rethink and make new interpretations of um the text the holy scripture the tradition and so on so the united states is is and is going to be a very interesting um um test for Muslims um, and the religion of Islam, because there is going to be, right now, there is no denominations among Muslims, no official denominations, um, like in Christianity or Judaism. But there is more progressive Muslims, there is more reformed Muslims, if you will, there is more conservative Muslims, and maybe down the streets we will see um, these kinds of denominations among Muslims as well. Right now, the mosques are more, most of the mosques are more traditional but there is more progressive Muslims who are asking for such spaces um, as well.
0: So how is that viewed across the globe? Specifically, so somebody in Pakistan, Indonesia, I mean, we could list a lot of countries and they look at American Muslims, this progressives that you're speaking of, LGBT plus, mm-hmm. that this, Dan just said, wow, when you he heard that, because i we were all thinking it. When they see this, and they see women and men praying side by side, do, do they think this is not just taboo, this is heretical, these people mm-hmm. should go
3: to hell? What, what, does that, what does it take there? Some extremists might think that way, um, that it's heretical and um, it is a big sin, um, and it, it is un-Islamic, they are out of religion. It's some new branch right now, un-Islamic. Um, but there is, um, even in the Middle East, there's scholars um, who's, who argue that, yes, this experiment needs to be done. They have to go through that struggle um, um, to find new ways for the religion, for Muslims to um, um, to survive. Um, and, for instance, in Turkey there is a branch of Islam. It's called Alevi, Alevite. Um, some people call it Alevite, and this is actually a very unorthodox, progressive form of Islam. For instance, these people who call themselves Muslims, Alevi Muslims, they don't go to mosque. Um, they have different sermons, they dance together in circles, men and women. And this has been done for centuries in that part of the world. And it has been accepted by Orthodox Muslims as Islamic as well. I mean, they regard them as Muslims. They don't tell, say, you are not a Muslim. Um, So they have been living side by side and practicing the religion that way. So I think long term, it will work out somehow, but it's going to be a tough struggle.
1: Have you been called a heretic? Um,
3: I don't know, not in my face, but (laughs) some people might have said that, yeah.
1: Because I think, um, at least in kind of our experiences, I mean... I think all of us, maybe we haven't been called heretics, but we've definitely been told that
0: Postate, we're
1: apostate or not going that's, to heaven or um, sinning against God. I mean, that is thrown around.
0: Yeah, It's pr- thrown out very loosely in the loosely, States, too. yeah. I've
2: been called a heretic.
1: But I've been called you a heretic. Down. I've been told I'm possessed because I'm mm-hmm. really female minister.
3: Actually, in Islam, Islamic tradition, it is very dangerous to call somebody a... Non-Muslim or somebody who is out of religion, um, because um, the Prophet said, if you call, if you say that to somebody, it might hit yourself. So you might, you, I mean, you might be the person who is actually out of religion when you attack somebody, because he might be a believer. Yeah. um and coming back to your question actually um people who are in the movement that i am part of the gulen movement have been called heretics by the turkish government so they they said erdogan said that people that we are actually non-muslims um and so on so erdogan himself made that claim
2: can can you i really wanted i was I wasn't gonna bring it up, but you brought it up because I I did a little research before uh, before you spoke with us at Grandma's house. Good for you! Did you hear that,
0: listeners? If you're actually in Denver, Dan did research. Maybe we should all read our homework beforehand.
2: <laughs> and yeah, can can you speak about you as a Turkish descent person and and this movement that you're part of? Can you can you describe a little bit about that and that how t- how that ties in with? Uh, the, the nonprofit that you're a part of.
3: Sure. So, um, there is an Islamic scholar. His name is Fetullah Gulen, and um, he is from Turkish descent. He was born and raised in Turkey, and he is an Islamic scholar. And he, through teach, through his study, he saw three big issues in humanity. He said the first one is disunity, um, ignorance, and poverty. And he said, the keys, the solutions to those three issues, for disunity, it is dialogue, for ignorance, it is education, for um, charity, for poverty, it's charity. And he convinced close friends to start a movement to attack, address these issues. Um, The first thing that they started were schools in Turkey. So they started secular schools, and it was difficult for him to do because he was an Islamic scholar and he was uh, advocating for secular schools, private, secular private schools. And his friends said, no, I mean, why should we start a private secular school? We should start religious schools. And he was completely against it. And he was finally able to convince them to start private schools, what they did. And that model was very successful. People from around Turkey came to him and learned from him about this model, this teaching model. And um, it turned out to become the best education system in Turkey. Um, And the people in the movement... Started about one thousand educational stu- um, schools in Turkey, institutions institutions in Turkey, starting from kindergartens to universities, and then he started interfaith dialogue programs in Turkey with minorities such as um, Jewish um, um, people, the rabbis, then the Armenians, the Greek Orthodox, and so on. And that was an um, unseen thing in Turkish history because Turkey is very nationalistic. Not very open t- um, to speak with minorities, and Fethullah Gülen did that. It was like a revolution in people's minds. Um, so it was, became a very successful um, um, movement in Turkey, and then it spread out around the world. And the movement started in Turkey also media organizations, such as a TV station at work, and newspaper, what became the mo- best-selling t- um, newspaper in Turkey. More than one million copies were sold by that newspaper per day. The second best-selling was like 400,000 per day, yeah. So, um, what happened later? I mean, something changed in Turkey. So, in Turkey, there was a corruption scandal in 2012-13. And um, it was the biggest corruption scandal in Turkish history. Um, ministers, um, the family of um, the Turkish president Erdogan, today's president at that time he was the prime minister, and many other people were involved in this corruption. And the newspaper, the media organization of the movement reported about that. And that was a thorn in the eye for Erdogan, he said. You cannot talk about that, there is no corruption. And once they started doing that, Erdogan went after the movement. First, he he, um, reshuffled the police officers, the judges and so on. He said they are all part of this movement, of the Gulen movement. Um, That wasn't enough. Um, He went after um, many other people in the movement and then he went after the media outlets. He took them over, he shut them down. Um, And then, in 2015, there was a coup attempt in Turkey. Um, a faction within Turkish military tried to overthrow the Turkish government he, and within a few hours he blamed the Gulen movement for doing that and at that moment he said these people are terrorists without any evidence so that, the very next day after this thousands of people have been arrested thousands of people including teachers, um, housewives, babies um, I, mean, I mean you name it from across the country and it's still continuing People who, ha- who have nothing to do with the coup attempt have been scapegoated and demonized and are right now in prison in Turkey. And I'm part of this movement, and um, we are in the United States, and Turkish President Erdogan is going after people in the movement around the world. It's a persecution. He, will, he abducted people in the movement, about 100 people around the world, including Europe. Um, they are being abducted, um, some governments support Erdogan. They go to Turkey, and in Turkish prisons, they are being tortured, and some are being killed. Um, and there, there's right now very there's a lot of evidence by Amnesty International, other organizations, about the torture in Turkey, and about the killing, and about the witch witch hunt. Some politicians in Turkey right now call it a genocide. What's happening in Turkey against people um, who are part of the movement? So it's it's, a, it's an atrocity um, in Turkey right now because. Erdogan was successful at the beginning. He turned from a conservative Democrat into right now a dictator, um, yeah, a vicious dictator.
0: I'm sorry, yeah, that's... yeah, I'm
1: sorry. Are you in danger for talking about this on our podcast? Um, I feel safe in the United
3: States. Um, so I have written several articles about this issue as well and I believe it is my duty to do that because I have the freedom in the United States people who are in Turkey who are my friends who are in prison I think um, I have to do that for them I have to do that and um, I feel safe here but if I travel to Turkey I would be arrested most likely immediately Mm. for doing that and there is an NBA player I don't know if you know about him he plays for the New York Knicks Enes Kanter And he's very outspoken. He is part of the movement as well. And he's very outspoken about um, Erdogan. He got kicked out of the Turkish national team. His parents had to disown him um, because he criticized the Turkish government. So he's by himself right now here in the United States um, living and playing for the New York Knicks.
0: So this Islamic scholar, his name is Gulen. So I'm going to spell this out for our listeners. First name, F E T H. U-L-L-A-H and how do you pronounce that? Atullah. And last name G-U-L-E-N. Gülen. So go Google that and do your research. Yeah. Thank we, you. And you want I, me to
3: add one more thing about him? Yeah. <laughs> um, when this current administration um, won the elections, um, there was one person in the US administration, um, Michael Flynn, um, national security advisor. Yeah. And he was in office for, I think, two weeks or so. He got he was fired after two weeks. And the reason why he fired was fired was he met before the elections with Turkish officials, um, high-ranking Turkish officials. And they made a deal to abduct Gülen from the United States and deport him to Turkey. And he was paid five, more than $500,000. And he was going to pay it, if the plan had been successful, millions of dollars. And um, you can read about that. In, um, um, you can Google it. So this guy tried to abduct a green card holder in the United States and deport him to Turkey. Illegal, illegal, illegal. <laughs> yeah.
1: Are you scared by what you see going on in our government right now?
3: I'm very concerned. Um, I was very scared, actually, the first weeks, month, um, because um, the rhetoric was very um, discriminating, and um, to see emboldened people, um, their acts and rhetoric uh, was scary. um, Until the travel ban took place. I think that night um, was a scary night. Uh, My daughter asked me if we had to leave and so on. I mean, she was 11 at that point. Um, She was afraid too. However, to see the response of the people, that was relieving. I mean, um, to see that the reaction that people actually gave a response to such um, unjust, undemocratic measures um, when they stood up and they protested, they went to the airports. In Denver, downtown, there was a demonstration for Muslims. More than, I think, 30,000 people gathered. So, at that point, we, I mean, we saw that, yes, we, we belong here. Uh, we can yeah. stay here, and um, um, we still hope nothing bad will happen. Um, but there is tendencies, of course, um, of this government in that direction.
0: I think this is this is why we have these kinds of discussions too, and we do this within Sikhism, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, specifically Islam. Like this, this is the one where the the phobia is on high alert. But I think that you know, allowing you to to come here and then you blessing us with uh, amazing content and then your demeanor, I think it's good for the world. So I appreciate you being here with us. Um, I have a lot more questions, but I don't know how we, we're at one one fifteen. One fifteen.
1: You give I, us fifteen more minutes, we can have two episodes. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Whatever
3: you want. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah. Um, the the night prayer. It's time for the night prayer. I have time until morning, so. Hey. No oh, no yeah. about that. Go go. Home, yeah. okay. All night, baby. Exactly. <laughs> well.
1: I think that it's hard for us with the the filters that we have to know the story, to know what's really going on. And I think it's really important to, to not only hear from you personally in this space that we're in tonight, but to share with our listeners what the whole story is, because that's, that's what freedom's about. That's what um, truth is about is when we are sharing the stories with each other. And I think uh, time magazine, you know, this week putting, Uh, newscasters and media reporters on the cover. It's so important that we're making space to speak truth because truth is a thing. (laughs) It is not all relative. And so it's I think it's really important to have you share. I agree. Thank you.
3: Thank you for doing that.
0: So if the um, Islamic tradition specifically is a very scholarly tradition and uh, the work in which you're doing is obviously more academic and people who are able to think beyond the box you you're getting questions thrown at you and you're saying no here's the context and then you continue to go back last week too with people need to be educated people need to be educated and yet the majority of the Muslim world is not educated and it's the fastest growing religion right now so it went from well, h- how many b- billion point what was it uh, would you say seven or so and it was like 1.3 just a few years ago I mean mm-hmm. this is this is very fast um how do you reconcile this with people who are they're coming to a faith and it's your faith mm-hmm. but at the same time it's not in some ways yeah and i would say the same way about my own faith too believe me mm-hmm. yeah
3: yeah it is a difficult situ- situation um we don't know i mean th- there might be different reasons why people convert to the religion of islam um but it is a truth that there is an issue of education around the world with muslims um this is one of the reasons why the movement, the Gulen movement, went out to about 150, 70 countries and established schools, including Muslim countries. There were schools of the Gulen movement in Pakistan and in Afghanistan, and they um, reached out to girls and boys. Um, especially girls need education in that part of the world. And it was one duty um, of the Gulen movement to do that in that part of the world. And this, the students were very successful. The parents loved the schools. However, due to the pressure of the Turkish government, uh, the schools were closed or, t- or given over to the Turkish government. And we, we are seeing, one of the problems is that we are seeing that some um, very narrow-minded interpretations of Islam are being exported from, let's say, Saudi Arabia to different parts of the Muslim world, where they try to convert Muslims to that ideology, yeah. to that interpretation of Islam. And some of the Muslims who convert to Islam, or some of the people who convert to Islam, might convert to that um, interpretation of Islam that might might be happening. So I don't have any data of, about why and how, they, how people convert, or and um, to what branch and what interpretation... Um however, as you said, um, it is deeply needed that um, Muslims need better education, not just religious education, but also secular education um, around the world.
1: Which and that's true of Christians are having the same issue. Um, the African and South African South American continent um, are some of the fastest growing areas of Christianity, but it is all a more conservative, Attending fundamentalist type religion.
0: This is what scares me about, I think both religions. I mean, we have two, the two largest world religions and we're around this table right here. I can't speak for Dan. Sorry. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Christian. I'm a, okay. There we go. But Christianity and Islam. And, and yet I, these poor countries and uh, you're right, you know, and, and I, and I've seen this too, cause I've, I've lived in a country that's poor in the Caribbean. It's not educated and it's, um, I don't even know if, if they've read the Bible, but they're listening to what the pastor has to say. Yep. And man, the, some of those messages are mm. are frightening. terrible. They really yep. are. So then you have two big world religions. I'm looking at this, going that that could be another so unquote holy war. And I use holy in quotes, by the way. You're not watching yep. me because it's not holy at all. And this will be happening most likely on like small scales, but it could become even bigger, I Mm -hmm. don't know. I mean, because we're such a small little bubble in America, we Mm -hmm. don't realize this, in Denver specifically.
3: Yeah, And there is an Islamic scholar, a Kurdish Islamic scholar, his name is Said Nursi, he for instance said, if you have religious education without secular education, you will create extremists. If you have Mm -hmm. only secular education without religion, you will create atheism. So, and you have to find the balance between the two.
1: Do you know the name Sakina Yakubi in Afghanistan? Um, So she was at the Parliament of the World Religions and she is responsible for creating the underground education system during the uprising of the Taliban. And so it sounds so similar to what you just described where she made it her mission and goal to educate. She started with girls and educating them when they weren't allowed to be. And then, as time has gone on, um, men and boys have come to her and have wanted to be educated. And so she's doing that work in Afghanistan. She was so inspiring. She takes on people that, I mean, people you would never want to be in a room with and she's willing to stand in the way and say no you're not taking this 8-year-old for your wife we're going to educate her and let her play on the playground and it was very inspiring to me to see that work being done and it was something i had no idea about
3: thank you for sharing that
0: so there's certain countries where islamic law being a true muslim is it's eroding it's uh, cor- corrupting the people and they're, br- they're actually breaking Muhammad's teachings and the word of, of Allah. Um, can you give examples for our listeners? So, because the, the, so many people assume that's Islam, that's Muslim. When these laws are being broken, you're saying, no, these, these are commandments. These are things that, like, actually what they're doing is the opposite, but they're doing it in the name of Allah.
3: Yeah. For instance, there was this law in Saudi Arabia where women were not allowed um, to drive. And actually, the law was they were not allowed to get a driver's license. Um, so they were allowed to drive, but they didn't get a driver's license. So <laughs> <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> um, so this is completely un-Islamic. There is no ruling in Islam that wouldn't give women the right to do certain things that men can do. Um, man can, women can ride, um, run businesses, enterprises, uh, and so on. And this is completely un-Islamic. And recently um, they changed the law, actually, so now they can get driver's licenses, but um, at that point it was completely un-Islamic. And an example for that that I usually give is, um, at the time of the Prophet, women were allowed to ride camels, and today's camels are the cars, and why shouldn't women be allowed to um, um, drive cars today? And besides that education in Afghanistan and Pakistan, the first verse that was revealed to Prophet Muhammad was Ikra. And Ikra in Arabic means read. It is understood by almost all scholars, mainstream scholars, as a commandment for men and women to educate, get education. It is a commandment. It is not a choice. And in some parts of the world, they oppress women. Um, and they say, you are not allowed to get this education. It's, it's a privilege Um, And this is completely un-Islamic, too.
1: Is part of your tradition that it's expected that people can read and speak and and know the Quran? Because in the Christian tradition, what happened is it was um, translated into Latin, and then it was in Greek and Hebrew, and so many of the everyday people had no access to it until the 1500s. Is that something that Muhammad was trying to prevent happening in Islam? Yes. So if
3: you will, at that point, Islam was a reformist religion, where people had to study. Um, Your lifetime as a Muslim is a journey. So throughout your lifetime, every day you have to study to read new things about Islam. You have to memorize verses from the Quran that that you have to understand and repeat during the prayer. Um, So it is a tradition to read the tradition of the Prophet, um, to read his life. Um, to read the Quran, for instance, um, it is a, it is um, very common during the month of Ramadan that people sit down and read the Quran um, completely. So some there is millions of people who memorize the Quran actually. So um, it, it there is a strong emphasis on educating people about their own religion, um, but this notion has been lost unfortunately.
2: And I would encourage. Uh, Feel free to disagree, but um, something that was really impactful to me and my relationship with with how my perspective of of Islam and the Muslim world, just because the Western media is so inundated with with um, depictions of of Middle Eastern Muslims in particular, um, I went to the I think it was the Nature and Science Museum, and they had the Silk Road exhibit, mm-hmm. and you read about how the Islamic world was the, you know, the pinnacle of Mm -hmm. science and math, and just about everything. And it was really beautiful and and eye-opening.
3: I completely agree that um, during the lifetime of Prophet Muhammad and afterwards, he emphasized on seeking knowledge. And people actually went, um, during the Islamic dynasties, the Abbasid, the Umayyads, and Selchuki, um, during these um, hundreds of years, they were leading in science astronomy, math, and so on, Um, philosophy. They took the Greek philosophy and they developed it, actually. Um, However, after the 12th century, um, there was a stop in um, developing science um, or new developments, new ideas in the Islamic world, um, because people thought that, I mean, we are at the peak and it's enough. We don't need to do anything yeah. more. Um, and that was actually, Islam went into the dark ages at that time. And right now, I hope and I see that Muslims in the West are developing new ideas, new interpretations of, um, for Muslims. And I think this is going to be, hopefully, in terms of interpretations, the Renaissance for Muslims again.
0: So that's where we, we get to this, uh, in the Jewish world, it's halakha and in... in the Muslim world, it's Sharia. So just help kind of clarify uh, Sharia law and what that looks like in in hopefully this Renaissance age, because that's exciting.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So Sharia is the outer dimension of Islam. Sharia answers the question of what a Muslim needs to do. Um, We talked about the five um, pillars of Islam. Um, So the Sharia defines on how to do that Um, um, So, for instance, how you do your, how you perform your pilgrimage, how you pray five times a day. This is written in the Sharia. Um, In in the West, people think a lot that the Sharia defines the government system. Um, There is actually a small portion only in the Sharia that talks about government system, and not government system, but how what the relationship between the ruler and the people should be, and the people and the ruler. Islam does not define any government systems. Gover- Islam does not say that monarchy, democracy, communism is the right way to go. Um, Islam says, if you can re- live your religion freely, any government system is fine. Um, in my opinion, um, democracy is the m- best system um, of governance right now in the world. Um, however, if you happen to be born in China, let's say, and you are free to live your religion, it's absolutely fine. But you are not. China is actually, right now, persecuting Muslims. Um, in, in terms of what the West tells about Sharia, it's about the punishments, cutting the hand, cutting um, certain parts of the body. Um, so... What happened is, in that part of the world, when Prophet Muhammad started preaching the religion of Islam, it was a common practice. For instance, if you had stolen something, that the hand would be cut. That was a common practice to resolve that issue. An eye for an eye. Yeah, eye for an eye, yeah. It was that practice, because they didn't have any prisons. There was no concept of prison, and they needed to have an effective, fast way to resolve the issue. And that was the way they dealt with that. And some of that um, was adapted by Muslims because they lived in that part of the world. But um, the next generation of Muslims, um, when they, for instance, lived in the areas where the Persians lived, the Romans lived, and they saw the concepts of prisons and so on, they actually said, we can change these punishments to modern, at that time, punishments. Okay, So instead of cutting the hand, we can send you to prison for it so many days. So, there is room for interpretation um, in Islamic tradition. However, if you take it literally, yes, at the time of the Prophet or that it was handled that way, then you have to do it the, the same way again. So, some, some people say that. It, I mean, the only right way is the way the Prophet did it and the people at that time, so we have to go back and they do it exactly the same way. But they forget about the tradition that was developed um, for hundreds of years.
0: This is why context is so important, people. So important. Oh, man. Yeah, I, mean, I think about like a kid talking back to their parents. <laughs> well, according to Torah, you're going to stone them, right? Um, <laughs> come on. But maybe some people will. I mean, that's, that's, that's what the Bible says. Well, we
1: know. I mean, we, we know that uh, another one of those horrible things is FGM and that that has been picked up by culture and, and tied to Islamic belief, and it's not related. It's, it's a cultural artifact, um, that hasn't been overcome by education yet, but I think people are working on it. I hope
0: can we talk a little bit about evangelism? Sure. so as somebody who grew up evangelical, Southern Baptist, state of Texas, our you know that our biggest drive was to bring others into our faith, and it was correlated because of of this afterlife. what we believed was if i if I save their soul or if God does it, but I'm the conduit that does it, then they're going to be good in the hereafter. I, I've, that's not how I operate anymore as a Christian. Um, but it's well, still, yes, a, we it's do, still, but yes. it's
1: Brutheology, <laughs> but it's not
2: through Brutheology. No, you're no, going to scare I, people. Everyone no. had uh, suspicions yeah. for years and now you <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah,
0: this is how he's getting them in through no. Brutheology. No, I, uh, we have, no. we have how many hundreds, if not thousands of fewer listeners because we're doing this, let's be honest. <laughs> Uh, but I know a lot of people still in that, in that worldview. That's their paradigm. Um, mm. What does evangelism look like for you? And I know it's going to be different for all Muslims like it is for all Christians. Is, uh, is that important?
3: So the concept of missionary um, does not exist in mainstream Islamic understanding. In the Quran, God says, I open the hearts. For instance, the uncle of Prophet Muhammad and the Prophet, whom the Prophet um, loved a lot decided not to become a Muslim. And the Prophet was sad about that. And in the Quran, God warns the Prophet, he says, it's not your job to do that. It is my job. I open the hearts. So, um, in Islamic understanding, there is no concept of going and doing missionary work in mainstream Islamic understanding. There is, meanwhile, some groups they go around and they invite people to the religion of Islam. In Islamic understanding, it is being a role model. So, you have to be a role model for yourself, for your family, and for your environment. And if people choose to become a Muslim, it's completely up to them. If they have questions about your religion, you can answer the questions. If you, um, if they approach you, um, you have to help them. If they want to become a Muslim, you have to help them. But you are You shouldn't be going to a person saying, "Hey, mm-hmm. you're sinning. You're going to go to hell. Become become a Muslim." Yeah. That does not exist in mainstream understanding in Islam.
0: Yeah, so. So from my limited understanding, I'm not a Muslim. Let's say I, I you know, I die tomorrow. Um, is this, is this a sad thing for you? I'm just curious because I, I, and, I and I, and I, no, no, I go, no, listen, it's a weird, no, it's a weird question because I go back to my, my upbringing and right. we, we all can. And it's, it is that moment of like, well, you were with somebody who was of, of the wrong faith. That's not as, you know, a leader superior. I mean, just using words because that's all we have and it's your responsibility um, and yes, God does open, even we've heard that God opens the hearts. We heard that in Christianity too. But it, it really comes down to you being the messenger for God in that instance. And I, I mean, again, this, this is a, it's a weird question and I understand it, but it's a very practical, relevant question based
3: on what we see religion, how it plays out today. For Muslims, there is no guarantee to go to heaven either. So I don't, I cannot tell you that I will go to heaven. Um, because it is up to God. Um, I don't know what's going to happen to me tomorrow. I don't know how God is going to judge me. So according to Islam, not only Muslims will go to heaven. I mean, there's people who lived before the prophet came, right? There's people in this world who have never heard about the religion of Islam. There there might be people in this world who have never heard about God at all. Um,
0: So So heaven is less about what you believe and more about how you live. I mean,
3: heaven is is where I want to be, okay, where I want to go. I don't want to go to hell. Um, And it is through um, being a good human being in this life. Um, um, And, I mean, being Muslim... Let's say it's this way. There's two types of Muslim. A Muslim with a capital M and a Muslim with a lowercase m. Muslim with a capital M is an identity, okay? Anybody can say he or she is a Muslim. But the most important thing is being a Muslim with a lowercase m, which, def- which is defined by values, um, which I tr- how I treat other people, how I treat my children, my wife, and so on. And this is way more important. And if I do that, and if I believe in God, I hope
1: that God will allow me to enter um, paradise. You believe in a physical hell, like a that it's a uh, what's the word ontological place? Is that right? I mean, there there, there is
3: different interpretations about that in Islam as well. Um, I mean, you can you can punish people mentally. You can punish people by burning them, right? So I don't know. um scholar, some many scholars say it is physical. It is physical. It is physical, but. Um, Hell may not, may not be the end point. So you can go from hell to heaven. And that can happen as well. Um, and by the way, I said that I want to go to heaven. Uh, <laughs> and in Islamic, in Sufi tradition, for instance, um, your goal shouldn't be to go to heaven. Your goal should be to please God. Because if you, uh, if you want to go to heaven, that this is something um, where you try to please your ego because it's for yourself. But what you want should be only what God wants. So um, one Islamic scholar said, if God is going to be happy, if I go to hell, let, let, uh, let it be. I mean, I, I will do it to make God happy. Um, so that understanding is actually um, more correct than to say, I want to go to heaven. So I'm sorry about that. <laughs> No, that, that's, that's good. a good I, reminder. I, it yeah. is a good reminder. Yeah. I
0: think that uh, Western Christianity is typically driven by the ego. Yeah. yeah. So if God says you're going to hell, then I think that uh, there would be issues. <laughs>
1: huh. Do you have any questions for us since we're engaging in dialogue coming from different traditions? I know you do a lot of inter- interfaith work, so it's no surprise, but... I was going to be like,
3: if so, you die tonight,
2: no, where would you second,
1: go? Second. <laughs>
3: Are you guys sad that I'm not a Christian for me?
0: So I, I would say 10, 10 years ago, yes. Yes, 10 years ago. Yeah, I've been on a trajectory for about 20 years of deconstructing. The last 10 years have been pretty intense. I would say even having children six years ago has really uh, done a number on me. But I was already in that, on that trajectory anyway. Education, that's what happens <laughs> when you educate yourselves. And when I, I started looking more into them, the teachings of Jesus as a Jewish rabbi in the first century that did a number on me too. So when I became, uh, um, friends and in conversations with Jewish people, um, cause that was one of the questions, actually one of my friends, we were colleagues and he was another Christian pastor. I got him into the, the Jewishness of Jesus and he goes and he starts talking to rabbis like, like I did on my, my earlier sort of deconstruction phase. And this rabbi said, you know, um, you, you want to, you know, at the end of this, you really want to convert me, right? And, he, and he's like, oh, well, no, 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 I, I, I don't want to convert you. He's like, but you would be happier if I was on Team Jesus at the end of the day. And he had to really think about that. And it's funny how, like, back in the day, I would have I said, absolutely. Um, and it probably was about the afterlife. And then if it wasn't about the afterlife, it was probably more about, well, the way of Jesus, it's the way, the truth and the life. I mean, it's, it's, it's not only the way, it's the best way. And now I go well. It's the way that I chose for me, and it makes sense. But no, I mean to answer your question in the, in the most long-winded way, no. I actually I think that it creates more of a robust faith for me when I come across people from all different religious backgrounds, and I'm I try to find the common ground, and I also am, I'm able to see the particulars which you're able to uh, uh, to speak about that I can say. Well, I I no, I don't land there, and that's that's okay because that's the pluralistic world that we live in. And I can respect more of your faith and my faith because of the differences. Back in the day, I would I would have I would have been going to hell for even saying this.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm the embarrasser. That's my job. So, what I would say to you is no, because what I see in you is a humility and uh, an assurance and uh, strength of your faith and your character that makes me hope that someday that my Christianity might reflect that. And I mean that sincerely. I think I've met so many Christians that don't own or carry their faith in a way that wants to make me learn more. And um, I think both Ryan and I have, have already told you that we see that in you. And so keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Yes. No. <laughs> uh, no, I, I wouldn't. I'm not worried at the end of the day that you're, you're Muslim and that you're not exactly like me, uh, as uh, someone who identifies as, as Christian. Um, I, I was debating in my head whether I should say this, because now I have this whole ego thing in my head now. Yeah, but you I'm can like, edit it out. No, no, yeah. I won't. <laughs> Another ego trip, being able to edit things out, <laughs> but I read more Rumi than I read my Christian Bible this week. Um, and that's not to say that I'm a Muslim, but there's something that I see in Rumi and I see in you from from our our brief uh, encounters that point me to a a loving God who is ultimately in and somehow beyond all things, and is is loving and merciful, and I and I trust that God. Um, and yeah. Who am I to say? Thank you. Welcome. Thank you.
0: This was good, and yeah, come back anytime. Hopefully, yeah, you can. You can. You're welcome at our all of our tables any thank given you. week.
3: Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. the work that you do, and I think it's very important for the community that you bring people from different backgrounds here um, so that um, we can all learn together because there's um, a lot of room for us to learn, for everybody to learn.
0: That's, that's the hope, that's why we do what we do. And if you, if you like this episode, by the way, share it online so yeah. your friends
1: can hear it and check us out on all the theology channels. That is right, we do have a T logo. So if you want to share the love um, we can set you up with that and the curriculum and all the swag and everything. So right. here's
2: thanks. Here's Cheers. thank you. <laughs> <laughs>